Uh, this is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Ashley. Let's all be seated and let's pray. Just take a deep breath. Just become present to the church. We're all here together. Become present to God who's always present to you. Just take a deep breath. Holy Spirit, come. We just, we just notice that there's cars passing by and there's, there's babies cooing in the room and and we're here for you, God. We've sung songs about the incarnation, that Christ has come in the flesh. Thank you. We've prayed a prayer about giving of our money as an act of ancient worship. Thank you for all the money we do have. Tonight we'll be thinking about our bodies and, and how thoughtless we are of others' bodies so often. Thank you for whatever state we are now because, God, you came in a body so that your body would be crushed and you'd actually give birth to a whole new body of diverse children all over the world of every nation, tribe, and tongue and embodiedness. So here we are, all our different stories, coming together to ask you, what does it mean to be the family of God? So show us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What does it mean to be the family of God? That's really what we looked at last Sunday, because our mini-series is called, As Family We Go. And so last Sunday, we talked about family. What does that mean? This word that our culture throws around, we're family. Uh, maybe you're part of a workplace that sometimes throws around the family language. We're family here. It's a family workplace, which is funny because you can't get fired from your family, but you can if it's your job. But, uh, but as family, we go. So last week was family. Let's look at that second half today. Uh, as family, we go. If you're a follower of Jesus, you, you carry something. You carry a mission from Jesus. And I want us to just soak that in today. And so as we soak that in, we have this mission. I, I want to bring us into a problem we have around the mission. <laughs> we actually have a problem. It's this big challenge that I think many of us have. And I'm going to get into that. But for the first 10 minutes, basic questions. Like, what does it mean that we're a family that goes? What is this mission? Where does it come from? What are we carrying with us? So 10 minutes First 10 minutes, I'll lay a foundation, and then we'll dive into the problem, okay? I know that's very cryptic, but stay with me. I think it'll make sense. So, mission. what's this mission? We're going. We're a family that goes. What are we doing? We opened with Ashley reading the mission, right, from, from our chief, from our head. And it's Jesus' mission statement for his family. And if you notice what Ashley read, she, she read that it's worshipers and doubters side by side. It says they gathered to worship Jesus and some doubted. And Jesus didn't say, hey, you worshipers, let me send you. No, he just gathered all of them together, worshipers and doubters alike, did not discriminate between worshipers and doubters because they were present to him. They came with different approaches to their own belief and they but they were eyes on him they didn't know what to do but their eyes were on him and he said now I commission you really he wanted to see if the proof was in the pudding go and and so I think that's really really encouraging Jesus doesn't rebuke or demonize honest doubt in that great commission moment he comes to the doubter and worshiper alike and he invites both to carry his mission forward there's safety in Jesus you guys that's the, so wherever you're coming from in this room right now 
whatever your perspective of Jesus, maybe you've been walking with Jesus and you're part of the church. You've been baptized. You believe. Amazing. Maybe you're skeptical. Uh, I'm so glad you're here. Imagine you're one of the folks around Jesus and he's like, hey, you, I, I want to send you. And in, what matters is not the feeling of doubt you have, but your response in that moment. So, so here is, here's his mission. Here's his sending mission. You have that slide. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That's the mission statement of the church for all time, coming directly from the top, okay? The Great Commission is what we call that. How many of you heard the Great Commission? Yeah, that's it. And, and Jesus really gives one verbal command here. There's a lot of words, but there's one imperative, and it's that make disciples. That's one word. It's like disciple. If that's a verb, he's like discipleize. Whatever. I just made it into a word that doesn't exist. But that's, that's how it is in the Greek. It's one word that means make disciples. That's the command. Uh, it, it looks like the command is to go first. But in the Greek, that's more a description. Like, as you are going, here's the command. Make disciples. In other words, you don't need to go be a missionary far away to obey Jesus. Wherever you are going, wherever you are coming, going, uh, working, playing, sleeping, waking, make disciples on the way, wherever you are. And so this is who we are. Here's the next slide. As family, this is what we're doing. This is, we go, and as we go, the specific thing Jesus commands us to do is make more of his disciples in every nation. And Jesus tells us that disciple-making will be accomplished as we do those two specific things, baptizing new disciples in the name of the Trinity, and teaching all Jesus' disciples to obey everything he commanded. I like that. He's like, you have one job. It's to do everything I said. <laughs> I like how Jesus just kind of caught it all there. So uh, this is what we do. This is our command from Jesus. This is what a disciple means. It, actually, a really good word that Dallas Willard kind of coined is apprentice. He brought that word apprentice to the forefront of conversations around discipleship. And I think that's helpful because we think disciple, disciple, and we have like baggage from, from church, like, oh, a disciple means standing or sitting at a coffee shop with someone for eight weeks or something and talking about questions in a guidebook or something. Uh, but, but apprenticing sounds way more holistic, doesn't it? You apprentice after a plumber for three years before you can start charging people in your own practice. And so Jesus calls people to be his apprentices, not just take a basics course, but actually live with him for years on end so that we can live his life out. And so, uh, and it's important to, to let you know that mission didn't really originate with the church. Jesus didn't make it up out of nowhere. He's pulling it from the Old Testament. Did you know Jesus is pulling that mission from like the earliest page of the Bible? Page one of the Bible, God makes everything. And when everything's ready, God plants a garden. You guys know the Garden of Eden story, creation. Even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard about the snake and the tree. And, and before the snake and the tree thing, God makes everything. And he plants a garden and he, and he makes a family to live in the garden. And he gives them this mission. Look at the mission, page one. So God created mankind in his own image. The image of God, he created them. Male and female, he made them, created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful. Here's, this is a mission. Be fruitful. Increase. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over all the creatures. So for thousands of years, theologians have pointed to this verse saying, this is where Jesus got his stuff from. This is where our mission comes from. When he gives us the mission to multiply, it's, the, it's just the same word. It's the same origination right there. It's the genesis of the mission, literally from the book of Genesis. And the mission has always been the same. As family, literally, as you're making family and going, make more family as you go. It's the same. Obviously, the methods have changed. This is primarily about reproduction, <laughs> right? But what Jesus comes along and does, what Jesus actually does is he redefines family and he redefines how you multiply family. It's not just through blood, not just through marriage covenants, not just through reproduction, but it's through faith. 
regardless of marital status, regardless of housing situations, Jesus expands the circle, which is amazing. Uh, So now today, the global church is the family that started on page one of the Bible and multiplied through Jesus and the church. Here we are, the one people. And Park Hill Church is one expression of the 2.56 billion member family that Jesus has created. And, and, and we, we multiply through making disciples. That's literally how we reproduce. That's how this family reproduces. Primarily, primarily, not even through bio- biology anymore. Primarily we reproduce through the gospel. This is what Jesus wants us to know. And this should, trans- this should transform every area of life and society, what it means to be human as we multiply Jesus' family. Whoever trusts in Jesus in every area of life becomes a child, broken and beautiful child of God as part of this church. And together, we're imperfectly filling the world with more disciples, very imperfectly. Uh, The church is this broken and beautiful mission organization that Jesus began. It's much more than that. It's actually a family. So as family, we go. Now, here's where we pivot to the problem. I mentioned there's a problem. So that's just a very short crash course in like a theology of discipleship, right? Uh, and, and really evangelism. And that's our problem. I use the word evangelism now. How many of you felt like a little defensive about that word? Slightly. So that's the problem. Uh, it's a challenge I face as a Jesus follower personally. And it's also a challenge I face as a pastor leading in this private faith cultural moment where Christianity, I'm glad, I'm, glad, I'm glad Christianity works for you. That's awesome. I'm happy for you. I got my own thing, though. That's just kind of the soup du jour, right? You, you do you, I'll do me, and as long as we're smiling and not fighting, everybody's going to be okay, which is actually not true because there's really bad ideas <laughs> in the world. And so, and so here's the challenge, is getting Jesus followers to tell people about Jesus. This is the problem. This is the problem, getting Jesus followers to tell people about Jesus, and I'm included in that problem. So, uh, and here's why, it's a, here's why it's a problem, because it's the command Jesus gives. Jesus commands us to make disciples. So question, how does disciple-making begin? Very practically, how would that begin? If the Great Commission is that Jesus' disciples have to make more of them, where is the most basic starting point for that process? We've got to tell people it's a process. You have to tell people about Jesus. Right? Where, where else would you start this? I mean, some of us go, well, we start by being loving, right? We start by lo- just loving people. And I want to say yes, 100%, like 1,000%. Of course, you don't want to do this hatefully, Right? Uh, so, so we start by loving people. Jesus, actually, Jesus says this in John 13. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love each other. So, of course, we love each other. But look again at this verse. Keep this verse on the screen. This is not the Great Commission. That's important to point out. The Great Commission is not just to love people in the church so that people outside know we're Christians. That's not the mission. Jesus said, if you love the church, the people outside the church will know you're Christians, which is an awesome thing, but that's not the mission. It's not the full mission, at least. The Great Commission is to make Jesus followers of the world. This is, this is our, if you could say you have one job that encompasses all of them, this is it. And, it's, I, and it starts with that word evangelism. And I know that word rubs us the wrong way. I feel it deep in my core. I grew up in evangelical West Coast, Calvary Chapel, crusade ministry everywhere, evangelism, you know, street witnessing, that whole thing, which so much good, so much good, and God still uses it powerfully. But let's face it. If the mission is just to make sure the world knows that we're Christians, then all we need to do is have a community night. That's it. But, but, which is a great goal, keep doing your community nights, but according to Jesus, that is an incomplete goal. The mission is never less than love, but it's always been more. It's to multiply God's family of love through the whole world, okay? And so loving each other is vital, it's incomplete. 
we need to go tell people about this Jesus who empowers us to love as the church. So to rediscover our purpose as God's family of love in the world, we need to recover the beauty and joy of evangelism. I'll just say that very plainly. Um, so a question, let's, let's just be honest about this. What, why are modern Christians so often hesitant when it comes to that E word, evangelism? Why are we hesitant? Why do we just kind of like kind of critique it or maybe justify why we're not qualified to do it? In the scriptures, in the New Testament, evangelism is not remotely a scary word. It's like the most celebrated word. It comes from the Greek word evangel or euangelion, which we translate good news. It's the gospel. And to evangelize is to like take the gospel. It's the same word. Uh, and, and it's this beautiful, energizing word. It shows up 90, over 90 times in the root. Uh, the root word evangel shows up over 90 times in the New Testament. Um, literally just means the message about Jesus, the good news. So, so to evangelize is literally just to announce the good news that God's with us in Jesus. Through the life teachings, death and resurrection of Jesus, God's kingdom of healing has come. The crucified King Jesus is now on the throne of the universe, which means injustice and evil and death have seen their day. They're actually fading. Satan's days are numbered. And one day the healing kingdom of Jesus is going to get the final word. That is the evangel. That is the gospel, the good news. And, and so before that day finally comes, here's the call. The gospel call is to repent of your sin. Like, rethink any behavior out of line with this good king. You do not want to remain in your sin or stand opposed to the goodness of God when this king returns, so rethink everything. That's what repent means. Rethink your whole life in light of the best news you could possibly hear. Okay? So, so this all-powerful king is ready to forgive and make you his adopted child forever. So, like, what are you waiting for? This is the gospel. This is evangelizing. I just evangelized right, that, right then. So if you're not a Christian, you've just heard an announcement that involves everything about your being and your present, past, and future all summed up in this Christ. So, so, so that's the word for what I just did and what I said, evangelism. So legit question, why are we scared to do that? I'm sure in this room there's a range of responses. Maybe you're like, I don't even know how to start that conversation. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> or, or maybe evangelism, maybe you're like, evangelism is just not my gift. Like talking about Jesus isn't my thing. It's, I mean, I, I like him, but I don't know if people like him. So I'm just like not gifted in knowing if they like him or whatever. Or maybe... Uh, Maybe you're like, I don't, I don't want to ruin these relationships. I've been friendship evangelizing my neighbor for like four years. Or I forget their name right now, but I've been evangelizing them for four years. Uh, and I don't want to ruin that awesome relationship, even though I forget who they are. Or, or maybe you're like, maybe this is legit. I'm afraid of being seen as one of those anti-science, homophobic, MAGA-supporting Christian nationalists. Like genuinely. Uh, according to Barna, February 2019, 47% uh, of Christian millennials believe it's actually wrong to share their personal beliefs in hopes of convincing someone of another, of another faith to turn to your side. You hear that? 47% of Christian millennials said in a survey <laughs> that they believe it's wrong to convince people to change from their worldview into their worldview as Christians, even though they think the most important thing is Jesus. How does that go together? This is the problem. Whatever the reason, many of us are walking contradictions. We say in one hand, yes, Jesus is the most important thing in my life. Why are you here on a Sunday morning? Yes, he's the most important thing. 97% of Christian millennials said that in the Barna survey in 2019. And at the same time, half of those said it's wrong to convince people to think that way about Jesus. So, so this is called cognitive dissonance. We suffer right now from this thing called cognitive dissonance. And what do we do? What's going on here? As family we go. Our mission is to make disciples, but we don't even 
know where to start if we even want to. So you see the problem. And I'm including myself here. You guys have plenty of neighbors who live just feet from me who I still don't know. And I feel this as a pastor. If you haven't noticed, like, our culture isn't lining up for the sage wisdom of Christian pastors these days. Like, our, our culture doesn't look super favorably on the office of clergy for all things wisdom. So, so I feel this kind of, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell people I'm a pastor sometimes. And it's no wonder with so many media outlets rightly uncovering all the authority and sex abuse scandals of America's once trustworthy spiritual leaders. So when I'm sitting at the barber's chair on Saturday morning and my guy, he's like, what do you want me to do? And I'm like, I don't know why, I don't know why I gave him a New York accent, but he's like, <laughs> he's like, what do you want me to, he's like, what do you want me to do here? And I'm like, I don't know, do this. And then two minutes later, he's like, so what do you do? And I'm, and or he says, what do you got going on this? It's Saturday. He's like, what do you got going on tomorrow morning? What are you doing Sunday? And, and in that moment, I'm instantly aware that the next words out of my mouth can be taken a million different ways depending on his journey. And many of those ways would not be great no matter what I say. So I think we all feel this evangelism problem. If the good news about Jesus is the most important thing to us, changed our life. And not only that, but it's Jesus' primary command that we share it. Those two things. The most important thing to me is the one thing Jesus tells us to share. But why don't most of us even try? That's just something to think about. It's like real. And, and don't get me wrong. I, maybe this doesn't apply to you. Maybe you're like, man, I'm actively strategizing in the gospel for my neighborhood and my family who doesn't know Jesus. I am praying and convincing, regularly asking them to come to church with me or whatever, and I say, well done to you. I want to applaud that. I think that's the minority, probably. I don't know what I'm basing that on. Anecdotally, I think that's probably the minority. But if that's you, you're praying for opportunities. I want, to, I want you to be free to share with our elders the stories of God answering those prayers. How is God answering your prayers? Like, if you're actively seeing people saved through your witness... Tell us, share that story with the church. Uh, we want to celebrate that with you. It's amazing. My hunch is most of us aren't there. We struggle to talk to people about Jesus, which is ironic for another reason. Did you know now, maybe more than ever in a century, people are more open to conversations about faith, specifically Christianity in particular? More people than ever, definitely in any of our lifetimes are open to conversations about faith. You wouldn't think that based on media or whatever, but it's the findings of exhaustive surveys. Even with all the media about pastors abusing people, even with all the ways Christians get mixed up in politics, and the church looks so silly the way they fight about reds and blues, despite everything that feels like opposition to Christianity in our culture, in a LifeWay survey, here it is, over a thousand Americans, it was a thousand and two Americans to be precise, all over the map, 66% say they're open to talking about faith with a friend. That's a random sampling of all Americans of every worldview. Two out of three are, they're, they're ready. 41% say they're very open. They're like pumped at the thought. 52% say they're open to conversations about Christianity with a stranger. So not just a friend. Now you're talking anyone you meet. One out of two would be more than, they'd be like open. More than just, I guess. And then, and then 26% say they're very. That's one in four are, are like looking for this moment with you. 32% say COVID made them more interested in faith conversations as opposed to only 7% who said they're less now. This is, so, so, and then only one out of five are completely closed. So you look around you, you'd have to be very, you wouldn't find many in a crowded room, it's very few that are completely closed. I want, I want to invite you, Park Hill Church, invite you to let that sink in. You know what that is? You know what that looks like? That's what an open door looks like. That is an open door of evangelism. For not even the gifted evangelist, whatever that is. You know, evangelism is not a gift in the, anywhere in Scripture, by the way. It's not in the lists of gifts. It's just something Christians do. 
so if you're, if you're a true Jesus follower, that means the good news about Jesus is important to you, most important, you trusted your life, and, and, and the gospel's important, you should actually be kind of, if you didn't know this, you should be pinching yourself at that stat, if, if the gospel's the most important thing. And, and four out of five, and three out of five, the majority are very open, it seems. So um, if that's your response, praise God. If you're like, yes, I'm pinching myself at that. I can't wait. I've, I've been waiting for this open door. <laughs> if that's you, praise God. Uh, but if you're anything like me, I'm thinking, I don't know if I can still, I don't even know when I'd do this <laughs> or whatever. And, and, and if that's true, why is that our response? Again, Jesus' most important thing. Jesus' primary command is to share this. And now such a huge percentage is wide open. What do you need? What, what, what do we need now to like start telling people about the most important thing in the universe? So I think there's two reasons why we're still hesitant. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of, uh, this is the bulk of the rest of the teaching. This is the rest. There are two reasons, two needs, two needs we, we have. They're really big. Uh, number one, we need to reawaken our hearts for the lost. We just do, we need to remember what it feels like to be hopeless. Remember what it feels like to be without God. And if you don't know, if you, you're like me and you grew up in the church in a very hope-filled environment full of faith, brought, I, was, I was introduced to Jesus at age four, and I don't think I was into anything super bad before that age, so I don't remember like hopeless three-year-old life. Um, so that's, you, we need to work. What is, we need to feel again what it's like to be lost without hope. When we see, you guys, when you see the hopelessness of your neighbor and the fear of your coworker and the begging for belonging of people walking around Adams Avenue or whatever, that's where I live, that area, we, if we feel that, we experience it through relationship, then we begin to see what Jesus sees when he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When John 3.16 became Christian cliche, that was a very sad day. We need to rediscover that self-giving, reputation-killing love that God has for the world that overflowed in the sacrifice of his own son in order to bring the good news to lost people. So why? So they don't die. <laughs> That's his motive. So they don't die in sin, apart from God. What would happen if we rediscovered that passion in our own hearts? You look up and down your street and you see the people walking dogs and jogging or whatever, and you, you feel this groundswell of, oh my goodness, precious people. Children of God in the sense they're created in his image, but I don't know if they're adopted into the family that lives forever. Through faith in Jesus, I don't want them to die. I want them to experience true life, and that life doesn't happen by me just loving them. I don't save someone by my love for them. I absolutely show them I'm real by my love for them, and that God is real, but there's no call to respond. That only comes through a response to the message of Jesus, and they trust him with their lives. This was Jesus' passion. Look what he said. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's his mission statement. That's him describing his own purpose. And he passed that same purpose to us, driven by a deep emotional burden to see lonely, depressed, broken relationships, marriages, hurting people, belong, be healed, experience genuine hope in their lives. Jesus, said, Jesus tried to convince us he tried. He said many things. Here's one of them. He said, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? I tell you that in the same way, there'll be no, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Apparently, Jesus is disproportionately interested in those who aren't yet part of his family. 
So question, can I ask you, are you aware of the cries for help in San Diego? Do you think about them? Do you see San Diego begging for help? Behind the wealth and the fashion and the sunny beach days and the careers and the craft beer and everything that's awesome about our city that's amazing, that I love, everything I just said, uh, behind all of that, do you hear the cries of broken marriages and insecurities and addictions and the begging for connection? And why am I, and people, people seeing insufficiency in themselves and wanting to ask someone, why am I this way? And don't really know how to look for a response. I really think reason number one why we don't bring the gospel to the world is because we need to rediscover God's heart for the lost. I just, I mean, I heard that all my life growing up and then I just forgot about it and and I'm confessing that that is something that I'm bringing back to the center of my life. And, and, and secondly, I, f I think it's practical. And this is where it gets practical. We don't just need a heart for the lost. We actually need a model of evangelism that makes sense today. I think we, we need a model that makes sense. Because we've seen the crusades. And we're like, I'm not a crusader. <laughs> I'm not a public evangelist pulpit guy that invites someone to a stadium and hopefully fill out a card at the end so that even though that still works, God still uses that, like a lot, uh, and largely in inter internationally. So, so, but we're like, we've seen so many ways. How do, we, how do we do this? How do we tell them? I don't have a method that seems to fit. Maybe you have like an unbelieving spouse. I've met several people in our church that are just loving their unbelieving spouse well. And like, sometimes they come, sometimes they don't. No, no pressure, we love to see them and it's like, Maybe it's your spouse or your neighbor or your coworker. It's like, man, I just don't know what's actually going to help. What's going to do it for them? What's going to meet them where they're at? Uh, even church, like bringing someone to Park Hill, <laughs> like someone who doesn't know Jesus with no context, they're going to get a meaty, long sermon. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's like, is that, is that what they need? I don't even know if that's what they need. You know what I mean? They have other questions way before that. Um, it's not really meeting them. It just feels like we don't have a model. It's either hopefully they see a gospel ad on Instagram or they come to Park Hill and have to sit on a really slightly, mildly comfortable chair. <laughs> and so, and we're like the old methods of evangelism, they worked for some people, but not for, I think, not for most. So I have some diagrams here from my friend Gare, who pastors a church in, in LA, a beautiful community. And I think this is really helpful. So in the 50s, this is, this is kind of why we're at, I think this will resonate. Do you have this one? <laughs> I love this guy, this stick guy. So in the 50s, you know, like Billy Graham's heyday, most people, they knew what you meant when you said you're a sinner, God loves you. They'd be like, oh, I forgot, I'm coming. You know, they, they kind of had a pre-Christian context already. They were working with some religious foundations, most people, Gare calls it God positive. Most people were God positive back then. Um, and church positive even. They respected pastors. So, so, so people just needed a moment of conviction. They needed to get into the Billy Graham crusade and sit there and hear him say, God loves you and he has a plan and you're a sinner and you're separate. Very similar, very simple four points and they're like, I needed this reminder. It was somewhere deep in my bones. Yes. And, and of course, this was heightened by fears of like post-World War II. You're afraid of war. You're afraid of like, a nuke might drop from Russia at any time. It's 1960, you know? And so people were like, where am I going to go when I die? And, and that was a big driver for a lot of evangelism back then. And, and, but I, I don't want to demonize this all the way. Um, it still works. Many people come to faith through simple gospel preaching in an event. Many people do. And I think we need to be careful not to become like cynics of the rest of the body of Christ. We just need to be honest about where we're at. I think for the most part though, culture has moved on from this, this kind of model into in the 70s and 80s, we discovered there's now things in the way of someone considering Jesus. You can't just bring someone to a Billy Graham event uh, 
there were still some Christian foundations. Some people respect the church. They know about Jesus. But now, you know, this is after the sexual revolution. People now know what, what you know, sex positivity is and what fun is and what, like, culture's getting more fun, right? And so, and, and it was getting more scientific. Uh, academic science was filtering down into the popular level, and so people were asking scientific questions in the 60s and 70s, 70s and 80s. They're like, why is, and they'd be like, why is Jesus right, but not my Buddhist neighbors who are way nicer than Christians? Why, are my, why, are, why is their faith wrong? Why is their Buddhism wrong and, and my Christianity is the right one? Or did Jesus really rise from the dead? What about science? Like, science doesn't let that happen. Uh, what about evolution? And you say God made everything. And there were these questions people had. Um, so the church responded in two ways. Since the culture was fun, the church is like, let's make church fun. And then they invented megachurches, right? Basically, that's the rise of the megachurch and the rise of youth groups. And all of that was to really create programs that met people in their, in their felt need. And, and the second thing, people had scientific questions. So they're like, let's give people proof. And so they wrote a bunch of books, Case for Christ, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Some of you have read that. I, great books. Still really, really great for people who need to be met by proof. Some people still want proof. I don't know if you have a friend that's like, do you have a book that argues rationally in favor of the resurrection? Because I'm open, and I think if I see evidence, I'll change my mind. Do you have anyone who's told you that recently? I have not heard that recently. It's less of an evidence search. It's more of a, a, a mood. People are looking for a mood. Like, I want to feel belonging. I want to experience something I feel as real. And, and that's just where our culture is headed. And, and so here's, here's where we're at today is, I mean, proof and conviction, that's great for people who want it nowadays. That's the idea. Proof, and, proof is great for people looking for proof. Um, that's for the proof people, you know. You, they do they, I do I, you know. So people don't have much of a foundation. And, and many people have toxic experiences in church, either with Christians or celebrity pastors, you name it. And maybe what I see most prevalent is this idea, yeah, Christianity was great for a while, but I grew past it. And now I'm kind of beyond it. I'm into other things. I don't want to come to church. I don't want to hear someone just preach at me for 50 minutes. I have questions, and I really want my voice to be heard because I have some answers to my questions too. I just want to talk. And, and I want to be honored, and I want to be heard. I want to go on a journey of just self-discovery, and I want to know if Jesus can be real to me. I want to know if he's like something I can experience. Not true in like data. I just want to feel good about it. Um, not just read a book. So how do we help people in that situation? And then, of course, you know, our COVID moment came along, and you have one expert saying A and one expert saying B, and most people are like, I don't even know who to trust. And you apply that to religions. It's like, here's a book, The Case for Christ. And people are like, hey, I bet is Muslims have a case for Muhammad. That's probably awesome, too. So I, I don't want to read that. Or, or I bet Buddhists have a book called Case for Buddha. So that's, I'm great you have a book that helps keep your thing together or whatever. Um, how, do you, how do we help that? How do we enter that with Jesus' mission? How do we bring the good news to Jesus, to people in San Diego who are still begging for help and belonging and purpose? And here's two things to end that I really think will help us. I think we need to do this. <laughs> Uh, two simple things we can embrace as a church. This is going to be very practical. Number one, yes, keep being friends with people far from God. Absolutely. Can you name names? Can you name those names in prayer to God? Can you, like, bring your non, not yet Christian friends and family by name to God in prayer? If you can name them, do that. <laughs> like, bring their names to God in prayer. And then, if you can't name them, that's an easy fix. You go meet people. You actually, you actually meet people who don't know Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> I love how Gary Jones describes evangelism. Uh, evangelism is simply this. It's joining God in a conversation he's already having with someone else. See, God's at work in our city. Everyone you look at, God's doing stuff. But God rarely does anything alone. 
He loves to use his children through partnership with the Holy Spirit. That's you. God wants Christians around non-Christians so that when God starts working in their lives, there's a Christian right nearby to help. The power of loving friendship. So you have friends, the three T's, tension, trauma, transition. You have friends that are going through tensions and and their relationships, or they're actually experiencing a really low trauma. Or they're moving. People's ideology changes most when they actually move geography. It's it's an interesting fact. Uh, I learned that from Dr. A.J. Soboda. People are in transition or experiencing trauma. Are you present to them in those moments? Are you someone they know? You're a Christian, but I actually trust you. <laughs> so here's what I'm going through. Yes, that's, that's number one. They'll know you're a Christian by your love. That's very important. But, but, uh, and, and here's the slide for that. Here's kind of what that does. You see the, the slide 21. It, they, were, they were dead set against even a conversation to unpack what's inside. But when you're present and you're loving and you're genuine and you're trustworthy, when they're experiencing tension, trauma, or transition... It's like, hmm, I'm present to you. You're present to me, so I'm present to you. And suddenly you have a conversation about all the stuff that matters right in front of you. The vast majority of people who I know that have come to faith, they did so because of a friend. Uh, I do hear stories of people coming to faith with, from a Bible in their hotel room by themselves, but that's far more rare in my experience. So, so here's the, the power, this is the power of love, but remember, love by itself, you can break down cynicism, but people still have to process all that stuff, all that stuff. People still have to, is, is, is God harmful? <laughs> uh, I've rejected Christianity. What about my experience? What about my self-discovery? Like all these things, they still need to actually journey through a rational process, and, and we're like, what, what, do, what do I do about that? And I want to say, this is, this is the final point of this teaching, I, I'm thankful to be part of a church that has a tool that would help with something like this, something that helps a person far from God with questions, who doesn't want pat answers, who has genuine objections to Christians. <laughs> Someone who wants to have genuine, curious, ongoing conversations to discover and explore with no judgment, in safety, no pressure, and and just a place to explore what this Jesus thing really is. Not to be preached at, but to be heard in their questions because they have these barriers. And that tool, we've mentioned it for, for weeks now. We've done it twice already in our church. And it really is this amazing tool called Alpha. And, and, and here's what Alpha does in people's lives. I love that line. Because that looks like a normal relationship with people. You just have weeks and weeks on end for people to just process. Having heard the gospel every week, then you open the table for the person to wander and to meander through pain. You guys, the first alpha thing I ever did, uh, I led a group here in this building, and the first night is, is there more to life than this? That's just it. And it's just a conversation about meaning. What does it mean to have purpose? And our table had people that weren't yet Christians at it, and it was amazing to see as soon as, as, soon as the, the video ended and then the conversation began, just to watch, I don't, know if this, I don't know if this is how it always is for everyone. I doubt, I doubt. It was very special to watch two different individuals spontaneously burst into tears, uh, one of whom was wrestling with, is there a loving God who would allow me to survive when someone else didn't? And then the other person said, I'm just crying. I, don't, I think the reason is because I've never been in a space like this where I'm eye to eye with people safely discussing the things that I, I know really matter but have never known where to ask about them. And just she just started weeping. 
And, and, and then weeks go by. After that night, I'm like, wow, that was really beautiful. And just something broke open. And then weeks into about week five, one of the couples with the, with the girl who broke down because of safe space, she, she and her husband were like, we're moving. We can't finish Alpha. And we're like, oh, my gosh, that's really sad. This has been really cool. It feels like a really tight community already, weirdly. And, and she's like, that's okay, but I really believe now in the power of prayer, and I need you guys to pray that we have a safe trip and that God blesses us and he protects us. Like, she wanted us, she specifically directed us to lay hands on them, having not walked with God before this week. And uh, this Alpha course, uh, these are the kinds of things that open up. And you're literally assigned in a group with people you've never met. And you're also bringing people, hey, try this thing called Alpha. Is it church? No, it's, it's, uh, it's church adjacent, but it's definitely no sermon. There's definitely no like, weird music. And it's, it's meal, it's food. And you get to talk about the stuff that matters to you and people listen to you. And there's some leading questions for sure, but you go. And there's no, nothing you can say that's off limits. And people are like, all right. And, and it's both relational and intentional where people feel loved, safe, and not preached at. So what about inviting to church? Yes, you can invite people to church. There's definitely, we still want, we still want that. We're not demonizing that. And we want you to keep that five-year friendship evangelism thing going with your neighbor. You still don't know their name. We still want you to do that, too. Um, but, but let's face it, like... Uh, Normally, the person we like are doing friendship evangelism with, our next door neighbor, we really want them to know Jesus through our life. It's been years already. <laughs> it's going to be forever again before you actually go further in that conversation. So why not invite them to a place where that conversation has started for you and you just listen and you're present to them in love? So um, that, that is, this is probably the most practical uh, an, like announcement kind of sermon I've ever given that ends with a very practical call to a specific e event in our church, and that's Alpha. And the reason for this is what I said in the beginning. As family we go, the mission is literally to make more disciples, which has to begin with this gospel presentation. And if it's hard for you to start that for whatever reason, we have something for you. <laughs> we have a tool for that. And it works. Over 30 million people have gone through Alpha, and something like 1.4 people went from totally like not remotely following Jesus to following Jesus with their lives uh, over the last 25 years or so. Um, so, how can we land the plane? How can we come to communion right now? We're going to. I want to invite you to, to close your eyes and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring to life in you a deep heart for the lost. A passion for people who do not follow Jesus. And I'm gonna slowly recite John 3.16 over you. Holy Spirit, would you come now? And ask yourself, God, how can I love people like this? Like what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not die, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Holy Spirit, fan into flame that same love for those who are far from God. If you're able, I'd love to invite you to stand. And we're just going to worship for a little bit. And there'll be people up front to pray for you. But feel free to keep your eyes closed and really invite the Holy Spirit into this moment. God is inviting us always to process. What is he saying? Come, Holy Spirit. For some of you right now, as your eyes are closed and you're just kind of 
you're pondering the sermon, you're thinking about the 99 sheep and there's one that's lost and Jesus like, I'm going to leave the 99 for the one. And you're like, is that me? I want you to think right now. Maybe you're like, yeah, you know, I don't have a heart for the lost. Just got to be honest. I invite you to pray, come Holy Spirit, break my heart again. Break my heart again. Let me feel what it's like not to know you again. What's it like not to know God? That hunger that nothing else satisfies. A life without the power of God, without the presence of the Spirit, what is that like not to, not to be built on Christ? We just sang, what a beautiful name. What's it like not to know that name? Lord, help me feel that right now. Do you, hear the, do you hear the cries of the lost? Maybe for you, maybe for some, it's like your prayer is like, Lord, forgive me for, <laughs> forgive me for having noise-canceling headphones on all the time and just not listening to you and filling my life with noise and information and music and just earbuds all the time, metaphorically speaking, where God is present to you. There's people around you who God is having conversations with. God, how do I join that conversation? So for these, these last few moments together, before we come to communion, I'd love to invite you, if if you want to respond to this moment by receiving prayer, there's pastors up front and, and community leaders up front who will lay their hand on you and just say, Holy Spirit, come upon this precious child, this precious brother or sister, and empower them to bring your gospel to the world. Very simple commission. This is a commission. As family, we go. Let's do it. Feel free to come forward for prayer.